Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Morning, everyone. It's like a school assembly now, isn't it? Yeah, making sure everybody says morning. Um, just to say that's a joke, James, wasn't it? The meeting tonight? Just clarifying. It's a joke. Okay, so there is no meeting tonight. James was just pretending because it's the World or it's the Euros final tonight. So uh, we'll all be watching that uh, tonight. Um, but yes, great to be with you. Just wanted to start this morning by sharing about something that happened to me when I was in, I think, year eight or year nine in high school. So I would have been about 12 years old. Uh, I was in our, the mu- our music class, uh, and that, I mean, kind of year eight or nine, we all had to do one period of music each week. And it was that time of the week, there were 30 kids in my class, we were in the music class with the music teacher, and the music teacher was a guy called Mr. Slane. He was in his kind of late 40s, he'd been the music teacher for a while, and uh, we, all get in the, we all get in the classroom, he sits us all down, and he says, uh, okay, we're going to learn a song uh, this morning. Uh, we're like, okay. So he says, right, I'm going to demonstrate. So he turns around at the front of the class and starts playing on the piano and singing the song that he wants us to learn. So we're all kind of there listening to him playing this song. But I, 20, minute, 20 seconds into the song, he stops abruptly, bangs the piano with his hand, turns around and points to this kid in the class, you, out, now. And boy kind of sheepishly, kind of surprisingly, he's like, oh, okay, right, walks out the door. Mr. Slane follows him out, closes the door, and then proceeds to give this boy the biggest telling off I've ever, ever, ever heard in my life. And we're all sitting in the classroom here. You know, the door's pretty thin. We can hear everything going, flipping heck, what? Gosh, this is bad. Man alive. Apparently, as we listen to the telling off, this boy had laughed at Mr. Slane, the music teacher, while he was playing the song, which we all soon realized was a big no-no. You don't do that with Mr. Slane, we realized. And when they came back in to the classroom after five minutes of telling off, this boy just looked shell-shocked. Like, he just had the hairdryer treatment for like five minutes, and he just sat down in the seat, just wanting to avoid any kind of, yeah, contact with anyone, it looked. Mr. Slane, on the other hand, walks back into the room, completely nonchalantly, like nothing had happened, sits on his seat, sits down at the piano and goes, okay, everyone, where were we? And continues playing his song. Uh, and I remember when he started playing that song again, I was like, I remember thinking, Andy, whatever you do, do not laugh. Do not even smile. Do not even allow the remotest little bit of a smile appear on your face while Mr. Slane is playing this song or any song ever in this classroom. That is what I took from that. And I, I think everyone in the class took that as well. And I, I almost, I, I remember thinking, I remember thinking as well, you know, just to be on the safe side, I, I'm going to, I'm going to play it really safe. And I kind of developed this um, appreciation of music face. I don't know if you ever have that. Have you seen that? You know, someone plays and you're like, So every time he played a song from then on, that would be my face. No matter what it was, that would be my face. I think a lot of the people in the class kind of developed that face too. We're not laughing. We're going to really be in this. We don't want to get told off like that kid did. Now, you may be thinking, why are we talking about this? Well, the reason is because the passage we're going to look at this morning is not too dissimilar from what happened in my music class all those years ago. Because the passage we're going to look at this morning is a telling off from start to finish 
It's a telling off. It's Jesus giving the Pharisees and teachers of the law a massive telling off, which they absolutely deserved. And um, yeah, the telling off starts at the beginning of the passage, finishes at the end. There's not really anything else apart from being told off. And what I want us to learn from this passage this morning is very simply how to not be like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, because that's how Jesus told off. So if you came to church this morning and were thinking, you know what I'd love to hear today? I'd, I'd love to hear about how to not be like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Well, then, if that was you this morning, today is your lucky day because that is what we're going to be talking about. Now, this morning, uh, if you were here last week, you'll know this morning is the second in our new sermon series entitled Meals with Jesus. Tom has put together this series and he's divided up all the preaches between people. I think I've got one sermon to preach on in this series and Tom has given me this passage. The one passage in the whole series where Jesus just reels at people for the whole passage. So thanks Tom for that. Great. So we're going to be looking over this series at different meals Jesus had with people and what happened at those meals. Now Jesus spent a lot of time having meals with people and uh, As Tom mentioned last week, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. So much of his interactions with people happened while having meals. And this telling off that Jesus gives is no different. It comes while Jesus was having a meal. Basically what happened was Jesus had just finished some teaching, and he was invited then by a Pharisee to eat with him at his house. Now, as we'll see... I'm not sure they actually got to eat that much food at this meal uh, because uh, Jesus basically got stuck into this Pharisee and his mates long before even the starters came out. So I'm not actually sure they even got to the food. But anyway, it was in the context of a meal, shall we say. So let's read the passage. It's Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 52. It's going to appear on the screen behind us or you can follow along in your Bibles. Verse 37 starts like this. When Jesus had finished speaking, because he'd just been teaching a large crowd of people, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. Now, we've often hear the word Pharisee and we know those are the bad guys, but we don't really know an awful lot much more about them. But basically, the Pharisees were a religious group in Israel who believed that the reason Israel was being occupied by the Romans was because they had disobeyed God and his law. So the Pharisees decided, I know what we're going to do. We're going to go hyper holy. We're not only going to try and obey all the laws of the Old Testament, but we're also going to add loads more laws as well. And their thinking was that if we obey all the law, God's going to bless us and get rid of these awful Romans who are occupying their country. That was their thinking. That was the way the Pharisees kind of thought. Okay, so that's the Pharisee. So this Pharisee invites him to eat. So he went in and reclined at the table, as was the custom back then. you would have eaten at a low table at this height and there'd have been cushions around it. And you kind of lay on your side on the cushions rather than sitting on a chair at a high table as we would today. That would have been the custom back then. Verse 38. But the Pharisee who'd invited him was surprised. Actually, astonished might be a better word here. When he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Now, all of you parents of, you know, little kids, before you start tutting because Jesus refused to wash his hands before dinner, know that this had nothing to do with hygiene, okay? This has nothing to do with germs, all right? 
Washing before a meal back then, it was a ceremonial rule, not a hygiene rule. And it was a rule made up by the Pharisees, okay? So basically, before eating anything, they had said that they would have water poured over their hands to symbolize the removing of the defilement of a sinful world. Okay, that's what the washing meant. That's what it symbolized for them. So they, they actually even came up with rules about how much water needed to be used when you were having your hands washed. You know, they're there like with a measuring jug, you know, like, okay, there we go, 50 mils, good. And, and also they had actually rules about how exactly how the hands should be washed. Okay, so if you think the UK government has been prescriptive over how to wash your hands this last year, well, this is something else, believe me. So the Pharisee who'd invited Jesus clearly expected that Jesus, a notable religious teacher, would wash his hands in this way. But Jesus didn't do it. Then verse 39. Then the Lord, probably sensing the Pharisee's astonishment that he hadn't washed his hands, said to him, said to this Pharisee who'd invited him to his house, Now, when you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of wickedness, you foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Jesus is pretty much saying here to this guy and his friends, you guys are all show. It's all about looking good on the outside, but inside you're wicked and you're greedy. You know, you think you're wise, but really you're fools and you need to sort your lives out. That's what Jesus says to these guys. Anybody ever been invited to someone's house for dinner and told them that? Yeah, me neither. Yeah. If you have, I would love to hear how that went. But, you know, as we'll see, Jesus was bang on. And what's more, he doesn't finish here either. He keeps going. He is nowhere near finished with these guys. He keeps going. Verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees, he says. Now, the word woe here, it, it kind of means like the word alas or, um, or like, oh, that's such a shame. That's what the word woe here means. That's the kind of meaning. So he's saying, woe to you Pharisees. It's such a shame because you give God a tenth of your mint rue and all other kinds of garden herbs but you neglect justice and the love of God you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone verse verse 43 now tithing giving a, a tenth of your income was required in the old testament now many of us still tithe today we many people give 10 percent of their income to church but these people weren't just tithing their income They were tithing the plants in their garden as well. I mean, think about it. That's just taking it too far, isn't it? I mean, it's like you all going home and cutting a tenth of all the plants in your garden or pulling them out, bringing them to church next week and saying, Andy, I'm tithing my garden plants to church. Here you go. I'd be like, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? Leave your garden alone. No, the the Bible doesn't tell it. It's fine. Let the flowers grow. It's okay. We don't need them here. These guys are going around with measuring tapes in their garden, measuring their plants and herbs and everything, and cutting off 10% to give give to God. And Jesus is like, what are you doing? Come on. The Bible didn't require them to do this. 
The Pharisees were going above and beyond what was required. Now, what's interesting in the passage is Jesus doesn't say it was wrong of them to tithe their garden herbs. He's like, look, you want to spend all day measuring your herbs and whatever. Be my guest. Look, whatever floats your boat, all right? Different things for different people, all that. But what he is saying to them is that when you spend all your time focusing on such trivial things like these, you will overlook the actually important things in life, which is justice and loving God. And that is what they've done. And that is why Jesus annihilates them at the dinner table. Verse 43. Jesus ain't finished. You've got more to come. There's more woes. Who wants some more woes? Yes, Jess is up for some more woes. Right, woe to you Pharisees. What a shame, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Jesus is saying, look, you guys, it's all about being seen, being recognized, being in the front position, power, status. It's all you guys care about. Verse 44, woe to you because you're like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. Now, a little bit of explanation on this. Back then, to walk over a grave would make you ceremonially unclean. Now, easy solution to that. When you see a grave, don't walk over it. All right. Simple solution. Problem was, sometimes people were buried in unmarked graves, and so you could walk over it without knowing, and so become ceremonially unclean. Jesus is saying to these guys, he's saying, just like coming into contact with an unmarked grave makes people ceremonially unclean, coming into contact with you Pharisees makes people morally unclean. Jesus is laying it on thick with these guys, and you know what? They absolutely deserve it. He is going for them. But the Pharisees weren't the only group of people at this meal. There was also a group of lawyers. Now, we don't have any lawyers here today, do we? Okay, that's fine. I can talk freely. Right. There was a group of lawyers at this meal as well. Now, these lawyers are sometimes referred to as experts in the law. um, And they were at this meal too. Now, the experts in the law were basically professional lawyers. Lawyers who earned their law interpreting and studying the law, the Old Testament, for people to follow. Okay, Much like lawyers today do. That's what they were like back then. Now, verse 45, one of the experts in the law, one of the lawyers, answered Jesus. Now, honestly, after you, when you see how Jesus replies to this, you're thinking, oh gosh, I bet this guy wish he'd never opened his mouth. <laughs> one of the experts in the law answered him, teacher... When you say these things, okay, I know you're directing it at the Pharisees, and I'm not a Pharisee, but when you say these things, you insult us also. Verse 46, Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you, okay? He's he's being generous with his woes here. He's giving them all around. Woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. You see, the lawyer's job back then was to interpret how the law, the Old Testament, should be put into practice. But the problem was that rather than clarifying the law, their interpretations always seemed to make the law harder and more confusing to obey for the ordinary person. So, for example, in the Ten Commandments, it says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy and to not work on the Sabbath. Okay, sounds simple, right? Pretty simple. Well, the lawyers are like, ah, it's not that simple. We need to put a few more rules in here. They said, well, work isn't just your job. 
When you carry something, for example, whether it's your handbag or whether it's a box or a bag or a whatever, when you carry something, that's work, you know. You shouldn't be doing that on the Sabbath. So they said, we need to define this a bit more. So they said, and this is what they actually said. They said, a person could carry a burden, whatever it is, a burden, something in their right, could not carry a burden in their right hand or their left hand in their bosom or on their shoulder on the Sabbath. So they said, on the Sabbath, a person could not carry a burden in their right hand or in their left hand, in their bosom or on their shoulder. Okay, so you're all sitting thinking, okay, well, let's figure out, are there other ways we can carry things? So you think, okay, that sounds okay. And then then they add this. Now, this is where it gets confusing, all right? So you can't carry a burden with your right hand, left hand, on your chest, on your shoulder. They say this. But someone may carry a burden on the back of their hand or with their foot. I have no idea how you carry something with your foot. Or they may carry a burden with their mouth or with their elbow or in their ear or in their hair or in their wallet, as long as the wallet is carried mouth facing downwards or between their wallet and their shirt or in the hem of their shirt or in their shoe or in their sandal. They said, those are the only ways you can carry things, you know? So we're walking around carrying things in our shoe, you know, on the Sabbath. That's, that's what they said. These are the rules they put in place. So confusing. Like people are thinking, how do I carry something on the Sabbath? What's going on? You know, people carrying their handbags around on their ears, you know, it's crazy. What's going on? Now, the weird thing is this stuff wasn't in the Bible. Like this is not from God. It's something these guys added on. Now, if you think that rule's crazy, imagine they came up with rules like this for all the laws in the Bible, making all of them more confusing and more complicated for ordinary people to obey, right? Now, that's pretty bad, but what makes the lawyers even worse is is that not only did they make God's law harder for people to obey because they came up with the regulations, but because they were lawyers, and you know know what lawyers are like, they could always find loopholes in the regulations so that they didn't actually have to do what they were making everybody else do. So can you see why Jesus got absolutely stuck into them? Can you see that? Jesus continues, verse 47. Woe to you. We've got more woes for the teachers of the law because you build tombs for the prophets. That's something they did. They'd give money to build tombs for the prophets. And then Jesus says, but it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Jesus is essentially holding this generation, these guys in front of them, responsible for the death of the Old Testament prophets. And the reason he holds them responsible is because he's saying, you share the same attitude as those who killed the prophets. Now, it sounds harsh, But as we always see with Jesus, while man looks on the outside, Jesus can see the hearts of people. And what he sees in these people in front of him disgusts him. And that's why he's so harsh with them. And the final thing Jesus says, final verse, verse 52. It's another woe, another woe, Jess, final one. Woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who are entering. 
You see, their obscure interpretations of the law stopped ordinary people getting to the the true meaning of God's word. They turned the Bible into a bunch of riddles which only the experts can understand. And the experts were so pleased and preoccupied with the mysteries that they had, had made up. What they did was they missed the point of God's word. They missed what God was trying to say. And they stopped all the people from seeing what God was trying to say through his word and the law as well. So Jesus gave the Pharisees and the teachers of the law a proper, proper telling off. But I think we'll all agree, they deserved it big time when you see how they were living and how they were acting. Now, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to get told off by Jesus like that. Do you? Anybody? No, no hands up. Yeah, a few people shaking their heads going, no way. <laughs> Tell us how to avoid that, Andy. Well, I'm going to. <laughs> I just want to share a few ways this morning. A few ways we can avoid being like the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And as a result of avoiding getting told off like Jesus just told off the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And the first way we can avoid being like the Pharisees, I think, is to clean the inside of our lives rather than just the outside. Okay, so I've got with me here my coffee cup. Sometimes bring this to church. I put my tea in it. That's a coffee cup. I put tea in it normally. I have my tea in this, and especially before we had tea and coffee outside, I would always bring this along on Sundays, and I would, I would I'd drink this. If I was preaching at both services, I'd drink it between the services. But a couple of months ago, I brought my coffee, cu- tea cup, coffee cup along with tea in it, um, and uh, I drank about half of it, and then church finished, got all my stuff, put it back in the car, set it in the little middle bit, you know, between the two seats at the front, put it in there. Got back home, forgot to bring it in. Yes. And it stayed there all night. And then the next day I got in the car again, saw it while I was getting in the car, but forgot when I was getting out of the car. So didn't bring it in the next day either, or the next day, or the next day, or the next day. All of a sudden we have tea with milk in it that's been there for five days in a warm car. And I remember on about the fifth day I saw it and I thought, oh gosh, oh, I know what I've got to do. So I pick it up, bring it in. Now, I didn't do the easy thing, which would have been to give the outside a nice clean, go and put it in the cupboard, and then Elizabeth would find it the next day and she'd have to clean it out. That would have been the easy thing to do. No, I didn't. No, I, I took responsibility and I opened it up and gosh, it was awful. Like the smell just made you want to gag. The milk had gone off. It was various colors and there was uh, foam and everything. Ah, it was awful. You think, how can I ever use this again? So I got stuck in, got the scrubbing brush out and I scrubbed it and scrubbed it and scrubbed it. It took a while, but eventually got it completely clean and was able to use it again. But the reality is we're all like this coffee cup. You know, we can all look good on the outside, but on the inside, we can be full of sin and greed and selfishness. When Jesus comes into our lives, what he does is he doesn't start on the outside, a bit like what I did when I washed the coffee cup. He goes straight for the mess on the inside and he cleans it. And the way he cleans it, not using a scrubbing brush like I did, he cleans it through his blood, through his blood shed on the cross. As the old hymn says, I'm sure most of us have heard of it, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, the blood of Jesus shed for us at the cross, 
Um, that's the good news of the gospel, which is what cleans us, what cleanses us on the inside once and for all. And you know, the reality is, you know, we all deserve to be told off by Jesus like the Pharisees were because we have all of this tendency in us to be like the Pharisees, to be judgmental, to be selfish, to be greedy, to be self-centered. And maybe we're a bit better at hiding it than the Pharisees were, but it's there. And the gospel says we deserve a massive telling off, but that's not what we get. Instead, when we come to Jesus and we say sorry, we get forgiven, we get accepted, and we get life. We get life in all its fullness. That is the good news of the gospel. Isn't that good news? Come on, yes. Muted yes is under the masks and big nods from Vishal. Yes, it's the good news of the gospel. But you know, the gospel is great. Jesus comes in and we're, we're washed clean like the hymn says. But you know, it's also so important to keep applying the gospel to our lives daily. You know, applying the gospel to the conversations we have, what we think about, what we want for our children, what our hopes are for the future. You see, applying the gospel to our lives each day is like giving the cup, the inside of the cup, a polish every day so that the dust of legalism and greed and envy or judgmental attitude doesn't settle back in our lives. So it's a one-time event getting saved through Jesus, but there's also that daily dusting our lives to make sure that stuff doesn't settle again through applying the gospel to our lives. Okay, so that's the first thing we can do to not be like the Pharisees. That is to, to focus on cleaning the inside of our lives rather than the outside. The second thing I think we can do to avoid being like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is to focus on what's important than what's trivial. I was talking to Tim Simmons uh, on Friday there. He leads, uh, leads the Falfield and Gorton sites. And he, he, he was saying he was reading a book uh, recently. And the book, it wasn't a Christian book. The book said, if you want to achieve something in your life, you've got to really focus on that thing rather than loads of other really trivial things. You've got to cut trivial things out of your life and focus on that one thing. And in the book, it says, basically, do you really need social media? Do you really need it in your life? So Tim thought, okay, well, that's a good, that's a good question. So he said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go off social media for a month. He didn't get rid of the accounts, just didn't go on it for a month. And Tim said to me, Friday, he's like, wow, I went off it for a month. And I was like, wow, I'm, I'm reading more. I'm praying more. You know, I'm reading my Bible more. My relationship with God is better. I'm like, wow, this is, this is great. <laughs> this is really great. He was, what he was doing, basically, was making a decision to focus on what's important rather than what's trivial you know I, I do want to say look there's nothing wrong with social media netflix computer games tv all these kind of things in moderation absolutely fine there's nothing wrong with them but just like there's nothing wrong with the teachers of the law and the pharisees tithing their herbs in their garden you know nothing wrong with that as well but you've got to ask yourself if you're spending all your time doing these things what are you not doing because you're doing these things instead American writer uh, Malcolm Gladwell uh, said this thing in, in one of his books. He says, if you want to become an expert at something, you just need to spend 10,000 hours doing it. You want to become an expert at something, just spend 10,000 hours doing it. You want to become an expert at golf, spend 10,000 hours practicing golf. You want to become an expert at whatever, spend 10,000 hours doing it. 
Um, and it's not a Christian book or anything, but it's just an interesting little analogy. And, I, you know, I was, I was thinking, you know, Jesus says what's important in this passage is justice and the love of God. And I was just thinking about myself. I was thinking, like, well, wow, what if we all decided to become an expert at justice and loving God and devoted 10,000 hours to getting really good at that? Do you think we'd get better? at justice and loving God? I think we would. Absolutely we would. You know, someone who's spent probably way more than 10,000 hours getting good at something is this guy. I think we got it coming up. Yes, Novak Djokovic. I was watching the semi-final that he won on Friday. He beat a guy whose name I can't pronounce, Shapovalov or something. Anyway, and they interviewed him afterwards. And the interviewer talked about how over this last year he changed his diet, he changed people who he kind of surrounds himself with. And, and as he talked and as the interview, interviewer talked about him, I realized here is a guy who everything in his life is focused on being the best tennis player he can be. Everything in his life is focused on that. He's focused on the important rather than the trivial. And, you know, I was just thinking, for me, I was thinking, gosh, Andy, what if I became a bit more Novak Djokovic about loving God? (laughs) I know that's a bit of a strange phrase. What if I became a bit more Novak Djokovic about loving God? You know, we all know that our love of God grows when we spend time with him. Love grows when we spend time with someone. That's what happens. And we spend time with God, our love for him, for him grows. Uh, And I was just, uh, you know, I was... It must be a couple of weeks ago. I um, I just took a morning out and just spent time reading, reading the Bible, praying, journaling, just waiting on God, really. And, and after a few hours, I just got a real sense of God's presence and his love for me and, and, and my faith in him and my love for him increased. I could feel it and I could feel it for quite a few days afterwards. Now, that was kind of three hours, three, four hours, just focusing on the Lord, spending time with him, And I was just thinking this morning, like, what if I spent 10,000 hours, like over the course of the rest of my life, doing that? Would that change me? Gosh, you bet it would change me. Would that make me love him more? I believe it would. You know, what does God say in the Bible? Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Now, I don't say this stuff as like a condemning thing, right? What did Andy tell you to do today? Well, I got to spend 10,000 hours, you know. Got to have a 10,000 hour quiet time now. It's not that. It's, you know, it's, not, it's not that. It's just something like, wow, if, if we do push into this and we do think, oh, you know, I want to spend time with you, Lord. It's going to change us. It's going to change us. It's going to grow our love for him and strengthen it. So I suppose I just want to ask us all, like, what is, is loving God the most important thing in your life? Are you willing to make everything else secondary to that? Are you willing to spend time developing that and making it stronger? It's a question I'm asking myself and I just want us all to ask ourselves as well. So that's the second thing, how we cannot be like the Pharisees, is to focus on what's important rather than what's trivial. And the third and final thing I just want to say that helps us to not be like the Pharisees is to help people find their way to Jesus rather than hindering them from getting to Jesus. You see, the teachers of the law made it hard for people to find their way to God. They, they put up obstacles. And you can, we can read that in the passage and think, oh, that's terrible how they put up those obstacles to stop all the people getting to God. That's awful. But 
I think this passage must, and it's not comfortable, this passage must make us all honestly ask ourselves, are there things we do in our lives that become obstacles to other people finding Jesus? It's not going to be the same stuff, but are there things that we do? Maybe it's just that we never talk about our faith when opportunities arise. That's going to hinder people finding Jesus. Maybe... Maybe our comments and interactions on social media are a hindrance, actually. Maybe we've just got a real pessimistic outlook on life, or we're quite judgmental. Maybe we just can't resist a bit of gossip. Maybe we still get drunk occasionally, you know, or, or you know, we're always getting very close to the line. Or we just can't stop the odd swear word from slipping in. You know, all these things can hinder people from finding their way to Jesus. Especially when people look at our lives and don't see any discernible difference with how we live and how they live. That's going to hinder people. So again, this is not a condemning thing. This is a, let's just, let's just look at ourselves. Let's just ask ourselves some questions. You know, it's, it's, it's good to do that. So how do we help people find their way to Jesus? Well, firstly, we've got to be careful how we live Because, as you maybe have heard before, you may be the only Bible someone ever reads. You may be the only Bible someone who's not a Christian ever reads your life. So be careful how you live. And secondly, I think we help people find their way to Jesus is by doing the stuff that we covered in our mission series a couple of months ago. You know, have meals together with people who aren't believers. Invite them to your house. Pray for five people and do it every day. I still do that. I have my little list of five people. Serve people practically. Share your story of how you became a Christian and share the gospel. Invite others to things, to events, to church things, to Alpha. Offer prayer and never give up. These things help people find their way to Jesus. So finally, right as we get to the end, how to not be, a, be like a Pharisee? Well, the reality is there is a Pharisee. This is bad news. The reality is there's a Pharisee in all of us. There's a Pharisee in all of us, but the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus came for us. He came to save us. And when we turn to him and seek forgiveness, he doesn't turn us away. No, he accepts us. He forgives us. He welcomes us into his family and he gives us an amazing future inheritance that will never spoil, perish or fade. That's the hope that we have in Jesus.